All right, you join us here today with a, a special lightning round type cold open. We know we love to talk about uh, little bits of movie and TV industry news in this portion of the show, but being that Barbie is doing so incredibly well at the box office alongside Oppenheimer, which we will be talking about in this episode, I had the idea that we should go into some of the upcoming movies that Mattel is trying to develop on the success of Barbie. They know that they have this catalog of intellectual property, IP, that they can just mine mercilessly for ideas. God help us. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm here to quiz Jason to see, uh, you know, test his movie executive green light abilities. What does he think... What does he think uh, the that Hollywood would actually try to greenlight as a movie uh, now that they know that people are hungry for Mattel-based movies? Um, so, are you ready, Mr. Chen? Yes. Okay. So, the first idea is a Viewmaster film based on the little, you know, toy that you hold up to your eyes. You click the little lever, and it brings a picture in front. Yes, it's a movie. Because every time you click it, you get transported into this world. This new world. Oh, okay, good, good. Ding, ding, ding. Uh-huh. You did See? it. Okay, so they are, in fact, working on a Viewmaster nice. film. And it's going to have parallel universes and multiverses and everything. Yeah, because that is the uh, the hot new thing. All right. Um, next up, a- an A24 produced film based on Barney the Dinosaur, starring Daniel Kaluuya, which is being billed as a gritty take for adults. So I know the answer to this one, and it's yes, because I read, I saw uh, the yeah. news about yeah. this. <laughs> I'm very interested because I do vaguely remember about how the original Barney the Dinosaur actor died because his suit caught on fire. Yeah. Because there is no air conditioning in the suit at the time. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, there's there's some some opportunity there. I mean, honestly, there's a little bit of like a thematic link uh, to some of the stuff we uh, saw in uh, Jordan Peele's Nope, that had like so, you know a little bit of like freaky stuff happening on the set of a sitcom. On the similar note, have you ever seen Death to Smoochie? I've heard of it, and I know the 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 rough outline. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So it reminds me a lot of that. That's the Robin Williams, uh, Edward Norton film about a clown who is sort of like in a dark comedy, but it's mm-hmm. it's made for adults. Yeah. All right. Next up, we've got Taika Waititi making a Furby film with Ansel Elgort. This sounds like a yes, but I'm gonna say no because it sounds too plausible. Correct. It is. It is not true. That is from that, okay. that is a joke from Twitter. <laughs> okay. All right. It just sounds like way too on the nose for yeah. me. Um. And doesn't Gremlins count as a Furby movie, or am I? Uh, I don't think they're technically the same IP, but it wouldn't surprise me if they, if oh. whoever has the Gremlins IP, will will try to reboot that soon. Okay. Furby could be a horror movie. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, we saw very creepy Furbies in that um, Netflix movie, uh, Mitchell's versus the Machines. I don't know if you saw that. It was a no, Netflix, it was a. It came from uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller of, okay. of Spider Verse, but they they were just the producers. But uh, there was an extended scene where evil Furbies pursued the family through a mall, and there's a giant Furby the size of a house that is shooting like lasers from its mouth. It was okay. It was pretty great. Um. So yeah, horror potential there. All right. Um, now, you may have heard of this one in the news. This is one of the ones that uh, 
that may have been making the rounds. I don't know. Is it true that they are working on a Polly Pocket movie with Lena Dunham in Talks to Direct starring Lily Collins? This sounds also like too on the nose, but I believe this to be true. True. Oh, yes. Nice. Okay. <laughs> You're just knocking it out of the park here. Every single I one. should be a movie exec. You know what? On the same note, they should uh, greenlight a Mad Max movie, but not make it about the toy. Make it about the characters. Remember Mad Max? Oh, yeah. It was like... Uh, it's like this little kid. Yeah. And he fights this dark wizard and gets transported into these like weird dimensions and he has to battle like mummies and monsters and stuff. Yeah. It was a really popular cartoon back in the day. Yeah. So if they're going to do Polly Pocket and have Lena Dunham and make it into some sort of like woke feminist movie, <laughs> do like a Mad Max action adventure movie and I'd be all for it. Yeah. All right. Final one. An adaptation of the major Matt Mason toys, which probably predate us a certain amount, starring Tom Hanks. I don't know what a Matt Mason toy is, but because you mentioned that it's very deeply rooted in American culture and starring Tom Hanks, I'm going to say yes, it's real. Correct. <laughs> wow, look at you. Five for five, baby. <laughs> or is it four for four? Five for five? Something like that? It was like five or six. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so you've proven that you uh, you understand Mattel's uh, intentions very well here. Like you... Uh, you can you can kind of predict that they're. Um, it does not matter what the toy is or or what the um, what the creative pairing is. If they own the rights to it, they're going to try to turn it into something. I was expecting one of these uh, lightning round questions to be Hot Wheels. I'm surprised Hot Wheels does not have a movie franchise. Oh no, that's on. Yeah, that I that could have picked oh, okay. that. Yeah, okay. Hot Wheels is in the is in the canon too. Okay. So all right. Well, I think. <laughs> Sometimes it's just really predictable. Yeah. I mean, they, um, Mattel has had, you know, Barbie is obviously the, uh, their biggest success to date. And, you know, it's on track to maybe even make a billion dollars. So they'll have a pretty big war chest to chase down some of the dumber ideas. Who knows how many of them will actually make it to the screen. But, um, what would I, what I would find even more funny would be if this ends up going the way of the, uh, the dark universe, the, uh, attempted cinematic universe where you know it's supposed to be inspired by the the mummy the tom cruise and they went to all the trouble of like you know setting up this group shot with javier bardem was going to play frankenstein's monster and um johnny depp was going to play a vampire i forget <laughs> so basically a johnny depp biopic yes <laughs> 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 anyway, they went to the trouble of promoting it and trying to get people excited, and they proved that like you can't really kickstart a, a cinematic universe after one film and not a particularly well-received film. Well, I was going to say, I think the thing with Mattel is that this is original IP where the movie could go in all sorts of different directions, whereas the Monsters universe, it goes in one direction. Yeah. It's either horror or action-adventure, and they definitely jumped the gun on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think... The key with Mattel here is to be to not rush it, to like be really careful in making these sure these movies are good. I am shocked though by how successful Barbie has been, but have you noticed like how good the marketing campaign for Barbie has been though? Like it's everywhere. Like you look up Barbie on Google and your your page turns pink. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and I mean we can talk about that when we talk about the movie in more detail, but it's uh, okay. It's a yeah. It's a really interesting time. There's uh, there's a whole lot of different um, ways to to talk about Barbie without even talking about the movie. So, but uh, you want to get started? Sure. All right.
Welcome to the Extra Buttery Podcast. It's a show about movies, TV, anything with a story and actors on a screen, really. Join Jason Chan and Robert Snow's free-flowing conversation with deep dives into characters and plot with the occasional salty opinion. So get your popcorn. I got mine right here. Let's start the show! Welcome to episode 119 of the Extra Buttery Podcast. My name is Robert Snow in Toronto, and I'm joined by Jason Chen in Vancouver. Hello. We are back with a, a long list of summer movies to talk about. We've, uh, we've been taking some time to stay on top of the latest releases, and this time on the show, we're going to be talking about Oppenheimer and Barbie, so Barbenheimer, but only one of us did the double bill, so you'll find out who that is shortly. <laughs> Um, then we'll be talking about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, otherwise known as Indiana Jones 5. And we'll also be touching on Asteroid City and Mission Impossible 7. But first up, we've got one that I think maybe was the, maybe tied for most anticipated summer movie between the two of us. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Mission Impossible 7 was, was pretty far up there. You, you were kind of lukewarm on Tenet, so were you a little less excited for Oppenheimer? Yes, for sure. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so Mission Impossible 7 was your was your more anticipated. Yeah, because also I wasn't sure what to expect from Oppenheimer because Christopher Nolan has never really done like a biographical film like this. True. Yeah, I mean, he's done historical films like Dunkirk before and, and kind of... Uh, done a bit of a, a cadence where he kind of does like a, a more sci-fi out there type movie and then he'll switch over to something a little more grounded yeah but yeah you're right like this is a centered around a particular guy and uh, that is a bit different for him and also he's been sort of more action oriented over the few, past few years like his action scenes have become a lot better and better and i i other than the bomb going off, and I, I knew that he wasn't going to go show, like, the horrid, like, body horror stuff, because that's not his style. Yeah. But I just wondered what action they would be. Mm. Like, would it be, like, a like in A Beautiful Mind, there was, like, a car chase and, like, this little fake uh, world that he inhabited that had, like, FBI and secret agents chasing him and stuff. And I, I don't think that was part of Oppenheimer's um, recipe. So I didn't know what to expect. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. And of course, the movie covers the a big chunk of the life of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the, the man who led the Manhattan Project, which eventually led to the uh, designing of the uh, of the first nuclear weapon, um, so nuclear, nu nuclear, what, nuclear. Did, what did I say? <laughs> nuclear, 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 <laughs> nuclear, nuclear. Um, it's like that Simpsons. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I you know, going through my undergrad degree, I was very interested in in this uh, portion of history. I, I wrote a paper on uh, some of the weapons, the weapons testing stuff, mostly on oh, like the later okay. stuff in the fifties when they were building what they describe in this movie as the super bombs, the hydrogen bombs. Um, 
but this is still like you know the the point they make um at several points throughout the screenplay here is this is the the tur- a turning point of history we didn't have these weapons before and then thanks to Oppenheimer now we do and he has to wrestle with that and the world has to wrestle with this capability um so I actually don't know what you think about this. I haven't seen any. I haven't seen you post about this on Letterboxd. So uh, going into this a little blind, what did you think of Oppenheimer? Well, first of all, I have posted on Letterboxd. You just I just didn't see yeah, it. Yeah, you just, just didn't, didn't see it. it. Clearly, you don't care what I think. Great. Oops. I gave it five stars. <laughs> Whoa. Wow, that is actually, I mean, for, for folks out there who, who aren't aware, like Jason is is very stingy with his five-star ratings, so. I am, I am. And I originally was going to knock it to four and a half because at the beginning, I, I did you see this in IMAX? I saw it in 70 millimeter, not true IMAX. Okay, okay. Yeah. So the first 10 or 15 minutes or so, I started to get really annoyed because Chris Nolan did a stupid sound mixing thing oh, where the dialogue yeah. was impossible to hear. Right. And I was thinking to myself, if this is going to be how it is for the next three hours, I'm going to be really, really pissed off. <laughs> but he, he like somewhere in between like the intro and, and, you know, where the movie really begins, I think he fixed it. Mm. But I just, I just thought that it hit every single note it hit everything I would want to see in a biographical film. I mm. thought all the actors was great. I thought the special effects were great. I thought the politics, the plot, the dialogue was all really good. I thought the female characters were interesting for once. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I mean. so I, I couldn't really find any faults with it. And I have become, I think, in my old age, softer. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to go, you know what? Five stars. Why not? Right? Like, I thought it was really good. I honestly think... This is probably in my top three Nolan films. Mm. And it's a crowded like top, right? Like, oh, of course. He's yeah. never had a bad film, in my opinion. Um, but um, I totally agree with you. I think this was a really great movie. It probably is the best movie I've seen so far this year. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is. Um, I'm not sure if it's the the best for me because I've given out a few five, few more five stars than you have, but um, <laughs> but yeah, it's up there. I mean, it was five. Uh, it was uh, it was full full marks for me as well. I uh, I know what you're talking about when you when you mentioned the beginning of the film. I mean, for me in my screening, I didn't have as much trouble um, picking out the dialogue. It might have been a different mix because it wasn't true IMAX. Yeah. Um, but the it's definitely he's bombarding you with that classic Nolan um, cross cutting in time sort of thing. Yeah. So you have to you have mm-hmm. to pay very close attention right out of the gate on the two framing devices that he's using. The one that he labels fission, which is like mostly color, and then the one that he labels fusion, which is uh, black and white. And you have to come to understand through like a lot of contextual kind of uh, viewing that all of the color stuff is is stuff that's happening. Um, around the, the the time frame of the invention of the bomb, whereas the black and white fusion stuff is happening several years later in this uh, centered around a uh, confirmation hearing for a character played by Robert Downey Jr., where he's, he's being uh, interviewed for the job of a commerce secretary, which you would think has nothing to do with um, the invention of these weapons, but then... Uh, it comes out that the character, the Louis Strauss that uh, Downey is playing, um, 
had lots of professional connections with J. Robert Oppenheimer. There were things that they worked on together with uh, the post-war managing of weapons. And so his relationship to Oppenheimer becomes very important to whether or not he gets this job as Commerce Secretary. And so it's a, it's an opportunity for Nolan to kind of investigate some of the uh, the legacy of the man without really showing him on screen. So because the movie is so long, you almost forget about the fission versus fusion part because there's no other title cards yeah. in the movie until the end, like as in, you know, typical Nolan style. Oppenheimer doesn't happen. Of the course. End. Yeah. I thought Robert, I thought Louis Strauss was interviewing for like commissioner of the atomic energy commission or something like that. Was it commerce secretary? I couldn't remember. It was Commerce Secretary. He he had previously served in that job, a, a head of the AEC, and so that's it was in that capacity that he got to know Oppenheimer. So he was he was answering questions about his time in that previous role. Okay. Um, but yeah, there there was a there was an excellent Twitter thread about breaking down the like I, I couldn't do it justice just off the top of my head, but um, this person broke down the symbolic meaning of the fission versus fusion thing and some of the things that they took out of that framing and it was really really interesting okay. stuff so uh i recommend seeking seeking out some of that criticism if you're curious about what nolan was thinking about when he chose to be like putting certain putting chunks of the film in black and white versus color and that i sort of didn't thing. know much about oppenheimer going into the film other than the fact that he was just the father of the nuclear bomb mm. so the whole stuff about the communism the post-war sort of um pol- politics that was all surprise to me. That was really fun to watch, especially at the reveal at the end where you kind of realize who was in it for Oppenheimer. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a really great part of the film for me. And I think its impact is a lot bigger if you didn't know about all the politics um, yeah. going into the film um, because it does unravel sort of like a murder mystery. <laughs> yeah, it does. And like, I think you... Um you uh some people out there might be surprised that a guy who did this like tremendous thing which empowered the US in such an amazing way and terrifying way that that his own government would then come after him years later and try to drag him down because you know he all he was doing was trying to critique and control the thing that he had created and they they saw that as unpatriotic yeah i mean that's pretty still par for the course these days isn't it of course, yeah. I mean, if, if the same events were playing out today, I'm sure we would see something like it, and probably it would be stupider because <laughs> the people involved are are less mature. But I guess, um, but it's just like any time you do anything that runs counter to national security or national interest, people are they're gonna the government's gonna find ways to bring you down. So it's politics, yeah. Which is why I really appreciate this movie because in the other films he kind of touches on it. There's themes of politics in there. But he doesn't really, like, come at it head-on like he does in this film. And the other thing is, like, Robert Downey Jr. is so good in this film. Yeah. He really steals the show. I think a lot of actors in this movie were so fantastic, including Josh Hartnett. When he first showed up, I was like, is that? No. Wait, (laughs) can it? Because he's changed so much, right? Yeah. And I thought he was, he did a really good job of become being like a serious character. But like, if you go through the cast list, it's kind of like who's who of who missed out on Batman. (laughs) Yeah. So like Killian Murphy didn't get it. Josh Hartnett didn't get it. And then it's the same roster of people he works with all the time. Right. And Kenneth Branagh plays this dude with a European accent again. Of course, yeah, he loves his love. Uh, Mr. Brano loves an accent. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's no accent he won't touch at all. It, it's it's crazy. 
Um, but I just thought it was really well done. It was well paced. I didn't feel like it took three hours. Yeah. Um, that's critical. Yeah. And there was a bit of fair bit of exposition, but there are definitely interesting exposition if, if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, the only weak character I felt was actually Florence Pugh's character. Yeah, that I mean, it's um, she obviously serves a function where she she's the yeah. most visible example of the affairs that he was carrying on, um, which you know helped uh, helped give the the government excuses to tear up tear down his character. Okay, so there's this scene, there's this love scene with Florence Pugh and and uh, Killian Murphy, and she mentions that he's reading uh, Sanskrit. Yes, yeah, the Bhagavad Gita, <laughs> and it's funny, like while they're in the bed, she makes him read out this part where he says, I am Shiva, destroyer of worlds. Yes, yeah. I almost burst out laughing at that scene because it's like Chris Nolan at his most corniest. There's still certain scenes where like, I think between male and female, the dialogue's not as strong as it could be. But it's like, uh, that. that's like the famous line, of course, because he he fa- he famously mm-hmm. said decades after the, the test that um, that particular phrase came to mind when he first witnessed the the, the explosion and but I'm he wasn't sure, but yeah. you weren't going to have him say it out loud because they, they did apparently it didn't happen like that he didn't actually say that in the moment so then you know how do you work in that phrase do you do it as like voiceover well while it's happening so you you understand that it's like it's happening in his head is that is that just as cheesy <laughs> no. i don't know the best way to work it in is apparently in a sex scene yeah <laughs> <laughs> who would have thunk yeah um, it's just it's really funny and corny and i still think this is the one part where nolan struggles a little bit it's the interpersonal relations between male and females i think he writes a uh, dialogue between two guys fine yeah um i don't know if this film tap passes the bechdel test <laughs> I, I don't think there's any scene where like a woman is talking to another woman yeah but i mean that, that, that's more like a reflection of that time period right where true it was still like, yeah. very male dominated the project was mostly male scientists and uh you know what i thought was really interesting you know how he put the marbles in the jar yes to count out the plutonium yes uh, i thought that was a really clever way of signifying passage through time yeah and it because it, this movie spans quite a bit of like time uh Years wise. Yeah. And there's like a, um, I think people just assume, oh, they, they took a bunch of plutonium and turned it into a bomb. Easy peasy. But then this, this makes it clear that like, no, they, they might've had a bunch of scientists who are all working in this secret laboratory in the desert, but they still had to mine and refine the stuff that went into the bomb. And it was like, you know, um, it was a race on many different fronts all at once to get everything in, in lined up that Mm -hmm. it could actually work. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. I thought Benny Safdie as Teller was brilliant. Yeah, I liked him too. Um, and Matt Damon plays himself. He's always good for a laugh. <laughs> yeah. Did you? And of course, I'm sure you heard the story that Matt Damon was telling about the uh, the couples counseling. Oh, uh, like that. This was the only movie he was he could do and get away from. Yes. Uh, yeah. To, because he was in couples counseling at the time. Yeah, his wife made a deal with him where where she said like, "Look, you've been uh, away too much. I I think we, it would be better if you took a break from acting." And he said, "All right, I'll agree to that, but uh, I have one exception. If Chris Nolan calls, you'll let me go and do that." And and she was like, "Yep, all right, that's your 
That's your one movie. Yeah, that was a weird one because I didn't even know he was in couples counseling. Like, not that I I care anyway. No, neither did I. But I was, uh, you know, it's the kind of story that um, that gets legs because it's it's such a evocative kind of scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Of all the characters and actors in this film, how many of them will get nominated in acting categories, do you think? Oh, boy. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. is a lock for supporting, for sure. Yep. Um, Same with Killian Murphy for best yeah, actor. Yep. Um, Emily Blunt? Emily Blunt could be in there for actress. I mean, it, her role is not gigantic, so it's not the kind of role that... Uh, she has a couple of, like, really big, like, yelling moments that would make for a good clip at the at the Oscar telecon- <laughs> telethon, but um, she's not really leading in a, in a major way. Um... Pew? Pew. Too little screen time. I think, too, yeah, too little screen time. Um, Matt Damon? Matt Damon might be in there for best supporting, yeah. Um, it is, yeah, it's tough. It's going to be tough for Universal to kind of make the call on who they put forward because... Uh, well, they're going to put everyone forward, right? As much as they, they might, can. but I mean, it, time has shown that, like, if you nominate two actors in the same category from the same movie, you can actually hurt your chances because the, the voters don't know which one they, they like better and then... You true. Know, the vote gets split. So it's true. So they might just enter one in each. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fair um, enough. Yeah. But but I mean it, it just goes to show that like, you know, he he was getting these excellent performances out of everyone. And and yeah, like you said, the uh something that's like three hours long, which um can be a real slog for people. You say to you say to anyone off the street, like, oh, you want to watch a three hour movie, most people will will uh shoot it down. But yeah. But by, uh, by the way, uh the soundtrack is brilliant. So good. Another one from Ludwig Gornson. I mean, he's our he's our rising star, you know, if we want to want to somebody... He's already a star, I think. I mean, yeah, he's a star. I mean, he's he's working in the biggest movies of all time. So I um but I mean in terms of like, you know, uh uh building his legacy in the way of like a John Williams or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um the one gripe I had about this movie is I went to a local theater where I had to park on the street. And oh. parking is limited to three hours. Oh, and no. this movie alone was three hours. You got a so ticket? I got, no, I didn't get a ticket. I was just uh. kind of nervous. But I again, I blame Chris Nolan for this long movie thing where <laughs> the movie itself is longer than the amount of time allowed to park on the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is a bit of an issue. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I really enjoy this. I mean, where would you put this among... I know you're a big Nolan guy, but where would you yeah. put this in terms of his filmography? I mean, yeah, I could be convinced to put it top three. Um, He's really mastered the simultaneous, like, timeline splicing thing, eh? Yeah, and that, I mean, like, there's a reason why his editor, um, I don't know if uh, Lee Smith edited this one, I can't remember. He's worked with Lee Smith a number of times, like, on Dunkirk and stuff, and and Lee Smith won an Oscar for Dunkirk for a good mm -hmm. reason, because it, you know, in the hands of a lesser editor, that, that kind of stuff can get really confusing, and... You know, you have to really keep people um, focused and, you know, know when to cut so that they don't get bored or they don't forget where they are in the story. I thought the structure was fantastic. No, no one else does timelines better than Nolan, where you can jump around and still have everything make sense and have everything come to a head in the final moment where, like, everything becomes crystal clear. Yeah. 
Oh, and I do want to talk about the uh, the big effect, obviously, because there was a lot. Oh, okay, of, yeah. There was a lot of chatter over the actual test explosion. You know, people said, "Oh, he's definitely going to detonate a real nuke in the desert," and that's no, gonna be of course his. not. That's freaking stupid. That was like a, the worst, dumbest internet mover I've ever, I've ever heard. And so, of course, he doesn't. You know, I'm not. Ex- I haven't seen any behind the scenes stuff on how they pulled it off yet. But I yeah, mean, for like an anti war film, and this is a very much an anti war film. Yes. In my opinion. Oh yeah. There's no way he's going to detonate a nuke just for an anti-war film. No, like, not to mention that, like... It defeats the purpose. Not to mention that civilians don't get access to nukes. I don't know how, yeah, how obvious true. that yeah. has to be. Yeah. Um, but the... Uh, uh, yeah, so, I mean, he's he's working with practical effects. Um, and the, the the test itself is stunning. Um, and it, it uh, obviously, it's presented in a way that's not... Um, there's a bit of a... It leaves you wanting. You know, because you, uh, there's the initial light and then there's a long wait before you hear the uh, the sound because that's w- what the scientists would have experienced when they were there, right? Um, but I remember thinking in the lead up to it, like they, they used some like really close up slow-mo footage of an explosion in some of the trailers. And I was thinking like, oh my gosh, I want to see more of this. Like it looked they, this slowly expanding fireball and like hitting the ground and like throwing up all this dirt and everything. Like it was this, it was a really interesting visual. And we do see a little bit of it in the very beginning in the montage where he's at, um, uh, he's studying and he's like, you know, trying to work out the mysteries of the universe in his head and he's not sleeping. We see a bit of it there, but we didn't actually see it in the, the test sequence itself, like an hour and a half later. Um, and I remember in the moment feeling a little let down because I was like, wow, that, that visual wasn't there. But, but then I'm thinking like, well, as far as, uh, the movie is concerned, as far as like the character is concerned, it's not like, uh, Oppenheimer could see that explosion happening in slow motion. All he would see is just the, the bright light off in the distance and the mushroom cloud and, and everything. So he couldn't really perceive it. And I think maybe Chris Nolan wanted to put us more in his shoes rather than in this kind of, um, supernatural, slowed down kind of perspective. I I have to disagree with you there. I thought it was really well done. I think the I think the best part of that entire sequence was the countdown from thirty seconds. Um, that built tension like no other. And yeah. we, I mean, I I guess I've seen enough like post-apocalyptic movies or movies that simulate sort of a nuclear explosion. So like Terminator comes to mind. Sure. Where like, you know, humans melt, playgrounds get blown up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, that was never Nolan's style. Like he's not into body horror no, that way. No. Um, so I like the controlled explosion. I like the way you saw how characters reacted to the light and the cloud. Um, the buildup was intense. I, I like you could hear a pin drop in my theater. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it was, I, it was pretty packed. And I should say too, like, I mean, in the moment I, I had a little bit of a letdown, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, no, that's actually the better way to do yeah, it. I, I think mean, so. it, it makes sense for the characters and what, what they were trying to achieve. Yeah. So, and I, I think the big moment was the countdown. Like he didn't skip a beat. He didn't fast forward after 30, during that 30 seconds. Yeah. Um, and he didn't, of, he didn't like extend it any further, like like crazy far either. It wasn't mm-hmm, like every mm-hmm. second took a uh, few minutes to pass or whatever. I think Nolan counted on his audience to know how horrible it would be. Um, just the fact that we were on the cusp of this huge uh, scientific breakthrough mm. in humankind. I think that was 
the bigger moment, so to speak. It wasn't the size of the cloud or the brightness of the light. Yeah. It was the, that exact moment, that exact point in time where we could say we changed history by pressing a button. Right. I think that was the best part. I think that was what he wanted to get through. And I thought it worked perfectly. Yeah. Uh, the sequence after that, where Oppenheimer gives the speech to the scientists at Los Alamos. Oh yeah. And he's and like it, hallucinating. And, and he's hallucinating and it dawns on him what he's done. Um, I thought that entire sequence was, was brilliant as well. Um, just the use of sound, um, the imagery, and the the sort of like disparity between people cheering and the amount of despair it has caused, I think, is really mm. telling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I was really proud of the fact that didn't he really resisted the urge to show footage of like Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. I think that's the easy way out. Like, yeah, I I don't. I'm glad we didn't see like the plane dropping the bomb right or like the make an entire sequence out of it because throughout the whole movie you're kind of waiting for action to happen it's a very talky drama yeah sometimes the best parts of the film are the ones you don't show yeah and i think that was a moment where we didn't need to see it but we knew how um significant the event was yeah because ultimately it's a story about science and not about military action so like you know uh even though even though it was science that was used for military means like you know, they they take the bombs away from the lab, and then it's out of his hands, and they don't they they, they yeah. barely even call him to let him know that it worked. <laughs> so it's really funny how they carried it off the nukes in like little lorry yeah. trucks. <laughs> I didn't realize that's how they yeah. did it, but I guess that's how they did. It. It's like wrapped in chains and just driven off into the middle of the yeah, desert. Yeah, yeah. And I was I was really uh, impressed by that. Uh, two more things I want to touch on: Jason Clark and Rami Malek. Oh, okay, yeah, both really great actors with smaller roles who did a really good job were you surprised that these two characters um well more so rami malik ended up being like the twist uh because i didn't really see it coming it kind of came out of the blue came out of nowhere because the film makes a point of oppenheimer kind of ignoring uh, rami malik's character yeah yeah. Um, so I, I thought that was a dead giveaway that Rami Malek would come back to do something significant. I didn't expect him to be the, the to make the turn from heel to hero. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't remember, like they, they said the name of the person who was going to come and testify. And I didn't remember that. that yeah. Too many. I didn't names. remember that yeah. that name was the person being played by Rami Malek. So yeah. So yeah, I guess when you finally see Rami Malek's face, um, unless you've been doing a really good job of keeping on top of character names, um, you're like, okay, you see him, and now you're thinking, okay, yeah, there's some sort of, I guess maybe you're primed in that moment to expect a reversal. So yeah, but it still sort of sounded like Rami Malek was kind of doing his his like Elliot impression from Bad uh, from Mr. Robot though. So uh, uh, yeah, agreed. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, Jason Clark, I I remember I saw some sort of like throwaway remark that uh, it, before I saw the movie that uh, indicated that they were going to name drop JFK in the in the movie somewhere. So then I was thinking like, wait a second, Jason Clark played uh, Ted Kennedy in that Chappaquiddick movie yeah, yeah, yeah. a bunch of years ago. Are they going to do something where like uh, Jason Clark is now playing JFK in this one, <laughs> but it was obviously he's a different character. So that wasn't the case. Why? Okay. So that's really interesting too. Why was JFK name dropped? He wasn't the only person who voted against Louis Strauss. I guess it's the closest this thing gets to like fan service because 
people probably wouldn't remember the other senators who were uh, who voted uh, against Louis Strauss. So they were like, oh, we'll just throw JFK in there because I guess he did contribute to that vote. But Alden Ehrenreich was great, too. eh? Yeah, I was I was I was trying to place him for the longest time. I was like, I know you from. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, uh, I'd forgotten he was in solo. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? He does a really good job. I recognized him at first, but then I was confused towards the end because he his character experience is a bit of a turnaround. Uh, He works for Louis Strauss, I thought. So, well, I don't I think the thing with his character was that he didn't realize Louis Strauss was as conniving as he was. He thought he was like an aide to uh, a potential congressman who he thought was this like really bright, really forward thinking person who helped America win the war. Yeah. And his vision and his ideal of him shattered when he found out that, you know, Strauss was not such a nice guy. Right. Yeah. It was just interesting how he decided to be so direct with him at the end. Like he's, he really let the disappointment show, you know, it was definitely like you have the hammer and you really swung it, you know, type of moment. Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree that maybe like, in real life, maybe an aide wouldn't be so um, direct and forward. But anyway, that's a minor gripe. But I thought everyone yeah. was good. So. No, so I mean, if um, if you're listening and you haven't seen it and you're thinking, oh, is the three hours really worth it? It is, definitely. Yeah. It totally is. Yeah. I, I think I might end up seeing it again at some point. Yeah. I actually, now that I've seen it like opening weekend as part of the Barbenheimer thing and uh, – um, now that I'm not trying to cram it in with a second movie in the same day, I can probably go back and watch it again and, and see it like with the perfect seats in IMAX and get, you know, the full experience. Um, speaking of Barbenheimer, you saw Barbie. So did you see Barbie first and then Oppenheimer or the other way around? Other way around. So Oppenheimer first, then Barbie. Okay. We, we, st- we, we took a, like a two and a half hour break in between oh, two to, okay. to get some food. So it's not like we were just like blasting our eyes out with movie to movie kind of thing was it a conscious decision to do oppenheimer first before barbie or it just worked out that way yeah because we thought you know um get the the talkier one out of the way um if you can even say out of the way because it's not <laughs> you know it's not really fair, fair to the movie but uh get the the serious stuff out of the way and then end the day on a like really bright uplifting type of thing okay yeah um but, I mean, I've had Bar- people say the same thing to me. Too, yeah, but, but I've had, but I mean, some people have found Barbie um, thought provoking in a way that they didn't expect, and that it mm. wasn't quite as uplifting as they thought it would be. So, um, really, you know, you can make you can make the argument that like it's um, it may not leave you on the high that you think it might. Because you're going to have to fill me in on this because I, I've so far kind of I was looking forward to Barbie, but as the hype grew. And more and more people got into like the whole like, hey, let's dress up and go see Barbie. The yeah. the, the less I wanted to see it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just it the hype got too much. Um, I I my worry is that it's overhyped. Um, but I did hear two different things. One was that it was good, but the other one was that it felt a lot less shallow than you think, politics wise. When my heart breaks. Some things have been happening that might be related. When my world shakes. Cold shower. Ooh. Falling off my roof. Ah! And my heels are on the ground. <gasps> Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig, is the first, as we alluded to in the cold open, it's the first of Mattel's efforts to turn their, their big toy box into, into movies and, and shows. 
Um, so they they kind of went with a bit of a swing here, a wild swing, because you you could there's a world in which Mattel adapts the Barbie toys and just goes does exactly what they've been doing with their like animated Barbie direct to video garbage for the past like 20 years or however long they've been making Barbie content. I don't even know. Um, and they could have just made a straight up adaptation where like Barbie has an adventure and learns a little lesson along the way. Um, but they hired Greta Gerwig and, and her husband Noah Baumbach to do the job. And, you know, they tend to write way more subversive, um, like prying sorts of movies that, that have something to say. And you can't really see Greta Gerwig taking a, a job like that and, and just, you know, not taking an opportunity to critique the material and kind of investigate it a little bit. And so that's what she does. She, you know, the whole movie surrounds, you know, what role does Barbie play in our society? Like what, you know, what does the, the beauty standards that she evokes, uh, what do they, how do they impact girls and, and then the women that they become? And, um, you know, how does the position of Ken as this kind of like, you know, know nothing accessory to Barbie how does that impact the character played by Ryan Gosling? And what does he do when he realizes that he's not as valued as Barbie is? Um, you know, does he eventually seek revenge? And like, spoiler alert, he kind of does. <laughs> um, so there are all these ways in which they they start to, to, to kind of be like, oh, um, what is feminism really about? Is Barbie really a positive symbol? Is she, you know, what, what is she like in, uh, in the real world? So they actually, they have the Margot Robbie and, uh, and Ryan Gosling characters go to the quote unquote real world where they, you know, immediately she finds that, Oh, uh, women are not as valued as they are in Barbie land. They're not in charge. The, um, the, the Barbie land that she, that she uh, comes from, where like the entire Supreme Court are all female, uh, the president is female, you know, everything is is women run. Um, that's not the truth in the real world. And that and Ken is very happy to see that men are actually in charge. And you could if that was just the surface level, I think uh, the movie would be get kind of annoying. But then they they kind of take it a little bit further and they they sort of say like, OK, well, you know, the real world might be men driven, but there are opportunities for women to kind of like change that around. And it it never feels preachy, which I think was the thing that ever that that would have really sunk it. If it felt preachy, then, you know, uh, it would deserve a lot more criticism than it's getting. But isn't also Barbie um, criticized by like the modern day girls yeah so like the first uh, she goes into the real world to find the girl that's kind of um she, in barbie land she's starting uh, the the margot robbie barbie is uh starting to have trouble like standing in high heels like her feet want to go flat and she starts having irrepressible threat uh, thoughts of death and she's like what do i do about this so she goes and talks to a kind of messed up barbie played by kate mckinnon and Kate McKinnon's Barbie tells her, oh, you have to go find the girl who's playing with you in the real world and figure out what's going on with her. Because if she's feeling sad, then that might explain why you are having all these weird thoughts in Barbie land. And then when she goes there, she she comes across this young girl who's like more goth kind of oriented. And she she's like, and this, this girl is very anti-Barbie and just reads her the riot act right to her face and says, look, you're a negative influence. Um, everything you stand for is not the case in the real world. I have no reason to play with you anymore. And so that completely flips the movie on its head because now Barbie doesn't know what to do with herself. You know, she, everything she's, uh, uh, she's been made for is a lie. Apparently funny, funny. Yeah. Like there are some real solid gags. I mean, I think, um, 
there's actually a Zack Snyder Justice League gag in there, which I which I oh. was my personal favorite. I thought that was great. Um, <laughs> it came out of nowhere too. Um, and Ryan Gosling is fantastic. Like, I mean, he's he's throwing in he's throwing everything at the screen. Like the the full like he's he's calling it Kennergy in all of his media interviews, um, where. You know, on the surface, he's this bubbly airhead type, but then you clue into the fact that there's this like rage bubbling underneath the surface that Barbie is, doesn't take him seriously. And then he lashes out at her and that forms like the third act climax, basically, of him trying to be taken seriously by Barbie and in so doing nearly wrecks Barbie land. It sounds like a very Ryan Gosling role. Yeah. Like he's always like had this like sad puppy look, but he's also played like really edgy characters in the past. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I remember in Drive where he played the driver, and he's like, like a, a a split second away from taking a hammer to your head, even though he's like super quiet and kind of minds his own business. Yeah. So I mean, should I go see it? Like, am yeah. I am I did I psych myself out of seeing this film? Also, when I went to buy tickets, every theater I saw was like full. Like, I can't believe how hard it was to get tickets. And I, I didn't want to sit on the side and I didn't want to sit in. The, no, no. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm saying, like, you know, uh, even if it's not a like a crazy priority for you to to go out and see it, like if you want to, like, wait until the tickets are easier to get, then there's nothing wrong with it. Um, and yeah, like it's not it's not going to do anything like crazy revolutionary in terms of women's rights or anything, but. But it's it's interesting to see how Mattel basically allowed Greta Gerwig to do with the material what she wanted. And there's been some interesting commentaries about, or some interesting reports from the set where like Mattel was freaking out at certain points and they would send their executives over to the set and they would say, we, uh, we don't know, you're kind of messing around with our brand a <laughs> yeah, little bit. Yeah, like yeah. you're, you know, you're you're not doing this the way we expected you to do it. And but- uh and they had to fight. They had to fight the executives to kind of present this more crit- critical, subverted uh, vision of the character. This is the same sort of beat as Taika Waititi with Thor, where like the Marvel really had to give Taika Waititi the trust to, yeah. to do what he wanted. Um, not that Taika Waititi was making fun of Thor, but he definitely made Thor, I think, a dumb meathead sometimes yeah yeah and like um yeah you contrast like the 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 second thor movie with the one with uh, thor ragnarok and there was a huge flip in the character and and so yeah like it's not to say that greta gerwig is as zany or you know kooky as taika waititi's style but yeah she's she's doing something different with the character than uh, any of the direct-to-video animated stuff that barbie had been seen in before well i mean if you're gonna hire someone like that you better trust their creative instincts yeah and so that, uh, you know, as we were talking about those other projects that they have in the pipeline, the question is, do they hire similar filmmakers who are willing to critique the material and, um, you know, but or do they, you know, do they get fed up with it? And do certain projects start to feel a little bit like, you know, the Disney uh, remakes, you know, the uh, the live action remakes where they're just unquestioningly making the thing as it was and not updating it or, you know. It's a fine balance for sure, but if they can give um, the directors the creative control they would like, I think that's probably the better way to do it. Yeah, and like um, you just can't cater to every whim. No, like, I think that's what happened with Love and Thunder with Thor, where it was too much. Taika yes, in yes, there. big time. Um, 
But I mean, it's translating over to, like you said before too, like the marketing was really effective here. Like they, yeah, um, they did all sorts massive of massive amounts of marketing, all sorts of different sorts of um, concepts for marketing. Like, uh, you know, doing a, doing like an architectural digest tour of the Barbie dream house, like the set essentially doing a set tour as if it were like a, a real house, um, like they doing the takeover on Google. So when you search Barbie, the page turns pink, um, you know, the, uh, that's the thing I noticed most is that people actually dressed up to go see this movie, kind of like a star Wars event. Exactly. Yeah. And they would, uh, a lot of theaters would set up like a, uh, life-size Barbie package for people to step inside and get, and get a photo taken as if they, they themselves are a Barbie. <laughs> that's pretty cool. And you like, literally people are walking, you know, they're walking into the theaters and they see other people dressed up and then they're going like, hi, Barbie. Um, just like the characters <laughs> in the film. So they, they're engaging with it on like a, more than just a superficial level. And it. uh, um, and reenacting a little bit. And so it's kind of cool to see how that's translated into box office because this thing, you know, despite opening against Oppenheimer, which is a completely different uh, film, mm-hmm. they didn't choke each other out and they ended up doing the fourth biggest box office weekend of all time, you know? Mm-hmm. Which is pretty amazing, like the fact that people made it into a thing. Yeah. And I wonder when we're ever going to see that kind of synergy again. It It definitely seems like... Yeah. Catching lightning in a bottle type deal because they movies used to be paranoid yeah. about running against each other, but in this case they're like, you know what? Let's just roll with it and see what happens. And you get Barbenheimer. I wonder what the next pairing will be like, how forced it'll be, or if it'll actually have that kind of like fan backing behind it. I bet you there's gonna be a film studio out there that has two movies by the same studio running the same weekend, and they try to make it a double header thing yeah and people are like just like no no you can't spoon feed that to no us. we, we no. gotta we gotta make the synergy ourselves yeah i bet yeah. you there's gonna be a studio that does that i'd be like a dwayne johnson double feature <laughs> yeah and everyone would just like raise their middle finger and be like no no we have to it has to come from us <laughs> yeah well one guy who was uh unfortunately uh, negatively impacted by the success of Oppenheimer or Barbenheimer um, was poor old Tom Cruise because... Ah, yes. Yeah, you know, segueing over to Mission Impossible here, like, he tried to open Mission Impossible 7 the week or two before Barbenheimer hit and, you know, was doing well for that brief window of time where his movie was the hottest thing in town. But now he's lost all the IMAX screens to Oppenheimer, so Mission Impossible isn't running in, in, like, this big format anymore. Um... And they're saying that like this might actually financially underperform for Mission Impossible, even though it's quite a it's a it's a pretty solid entry in the franchise. There's nothing wrong with it. I think there's plenty of wrong with film. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) This mission of yours is going to cost you. The world is changing. Truth is vanishing. War is coming. Backtracking a bit, why do you think people aren't as interested in Dead Reckoning? Do you think it's because it's the part one? Do you think it's because it's Tom Cruise and Scientology? Do you think it's because it's been delayed? Do you think it's because it came out too soon after Top Gun? It, yeah, it could be a mix of all of those things. I mean, the uh, yeah, like Top Gun obviously had the the benefit of being a um, a long-awaited uh, follow-up and like you know it hasn't been that long since Mission Impossible Fallout came out so there's less nostalgia or, or a sense of like missing um 
And then there's just the natural thing with like Mission Impossible movies where they're so self-contained that like you don't have to watch them all in sequence. You don't have to watch uh, the entire franchise. You can pick and choose which ones you want to watch. And so when you get to the end of one, it's not screaming out for us for the next one, you know? Um, so. Well, I mean, there's continuity with the characters, but definitely not so much the plot. Exactly. Yeah. Like they're very like they might carry over a villain like they did with uh, the Sean Harris character between um, Rogue Nation and Fallout. But like uh, he, it's not like there was like really unfinished business or some sort of like really important piece of plot that, that was tied yeah. to it. Yeah. So, I mean, we can go into the film now. Um, I was I was on the verge of being really disappointed by this. I was oh. whelmed. Mm. I was uh, not into this movie as much as uh, Ghost Protocol and Fallout. Mm. I think this was one of the weaker entries into the franchise. Oh. I, I found this movie really formulaic. I found it not really thrilling. <laughs> Mm. I thought the female characters were written into a mess. Um, and I think Christopher McQuarrie was chosen to direct this movie because he kind of is a yes man to Tom Cruise. Yeah. And and, and this, this franchise has gotten to the point where it, it's getting a little stale. I think the reason why Ghost Protocol and Fallout were so good was because they brought in directors, they brought in new characters, they brought in new ideas. I failed to think of a new idea that's introduced in this film. Like what sequence or what stunt did this film do that was hasn't been done before? Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. Because it's also part 1, I can't really give this film a full score kind of like Dune part 1 because I need to see what the second part is and see if it can <laughs> redeem part 1. Right, okay. Because okay. like it, it should be seen as one movie, right, even though it's split into two. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know you, you've, you've applied that rule elsewhere and yeah, I mean, I yeah. Can, yeah. But the comment you made about Chris McQuarrie is interesting because he's, it's the first time that we've had continuity across between individual Mission Impossible movies. Like they had changed it up with a different director every single time until they landed on Chris McQuarrie and they realized, oh, okay. Uh, this is the guy, kind of like you're saying, he's a bit of a yes man. You know, he he's subservient. That's what I think. I don't I, know. Sure, but, but I mean, yeah. I'm he, he definitely has an eye for visuals. Like he knows yep, how to make sure. this stuff look uh, incredible. Um, but as time has gone by, it's become less of a Chris McQuarrie uh, authorship kind of thing and more of a Tom Cruise as the author of it, you know? And, yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it does sometimes feel like, you know, Tom Cruise gets an idea for a stunt and then they're trying to like work the plot around it. And, um, you know, one, one person told me that he fell asleep during the opening exposition uh, part in the CIA offices. Um, <laughs> so long. And I can kind of understand so why, because even if you do fall asleep and miss that entire setup of like what's actually being talked about, you are no worse off because the plot does not really matter. It's it's just, you know, it's just for stringing along, getting those action scenes uh stitched together correct i felt the same way i thought this was a film written around the action set pieces you know mission impossible has has done that in the past it's not a tremendous like um departure for them to do that no but i think it worked better in the other stories mm. yeah i mean fallout was a more fallout had a definitely a bigger climax in terms of stakes because there was a bomb and there was a sense of like yeah they may not make it and uh this kind of thing but with with this like 
you know, we know that it's kind of like you were saying, we know it's part one. We know that the, the, this algorithm that they're fighting, this entity that's achieved self-consciousness um, has, you know, we're not going to have it resolved in this, this one. And so, you know, Ethan can't die. Um, who knows? Maybe even spoilers ahead for those who haven't seen it. Maybe even Ilsa isn't fully dead. We don't know. Yeah. I would, I would hate that. But anyway, okay. So, so, so you you touched a bunch of a, a couple things I want to mention. So, uh, so in the other movies, say let's take Fallout for example. So let's say, okay, to me it seems like the plot came first because it's like okay, Tom Ethan Hunt has to chase down Henry Cavill. Okay, how can we make that exciting? I know. Let's chase each other in helicopters. Yeah, that makes sense to me. This is like okay, we want to jump off a motorcycle off a mountain and parachute off it. Uh, how can we write this stunt into the script? Yeah. yeah. That that was how I felt it was very uh, dissimilar between the two films. Ilsa Faust. I hate what they did to the character. Mm. I think they picked Haley Atwell because she bears quite a resemblance to Rebecca Ferguson. Mm. I think Tom Cruise definitely has a thing for brunettes. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate the fact that, oh... Ilsa's dead, even though we spent movies building her up, we'll just re- replace her with a similar female character. Mm, yeah. And it's it I think it cheapens Ilsa's character. I think it ensures there's continuity in the group, but it doesn't change the group dynamic at all. True. Um, I don't understand why Haley Atwell's character trusts Ethan Hunt so implicitly in the beginning when he just like grabs her arm. Mm, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like that's how they meet. He literally grabs her arm. Yes. Yeah. It's not him witnessing her commit something and chasing after her. It is literally him just grabbing her arm. Be like, hey, how you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Let me lay down this, you know, creepy old man line to a woman many years is his junior. Yes. And it somehow works. Um, I think Sean Harris was a far better villain. I, I, I think when Vin Rame says, listen, you can't kill the villain on the train. I think that was a really good exposition, but it also takes away the lot of the stakes in the in the train sequence. Yeah. And did you find that, you know, when the, the train cars were falling off the bridge, did that remind you of Drake's Fortune video video games a lot? Like I mean I I didn't play them. Oh, but I, okay. Uh, but 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 yeah the, uh, the it's <laughs> like the climbing up as things fall down. Tom Holland does yeah. the same in the Drake's Fortune movie. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, there there was a sense where, like, especially as the like the second or the third train car slipped over the edge, it's like enough. Like, how I was like, how many more of these yeah. does he have to climb through? It was starting to get a more silly than thrilling. Well, that's the um, thing too, and the same thing I could say the same thing about the pickpocketing, the hand hand sleight of hand tricks. It, it felt really gimmicky. And if you look back, if you think back to Ghost Protocol, you had like the 3D projection screen that they used to break into that. that uh, Into the Russian. The Russian uh, yeah. yeah. Fallout. You had the Halo jump. That was incredible. Yes. And now you follow up with this. It seems like Tom Cruise set the bar so high for himself that it becomes increasingly difficult to clear. And I wonder if Dead Reckoning Part 2 has an even bigger stunt than the bike sequence. Because in this one, the bike sequence, as difficult as it was to pull off, and as much as I appreciate the amount of effort into it, 
um, it felt very underwhelming. Yeah, and like the fact that they gave a, almost the entire thing away in the trailer was a bit of a bit disappointing. Yeah, you know, I like know. they um, obviously they have you know as far as the story is concerned, they have him not just paraglide away from that stunt, but then he actually uses it to like get to the train. He crashes through the train car. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. just like a very slapstick way of concluding it. But the, I know. Um, but yeah, everything that everything we saw in the trailer is played out here, and there's no additional aspects to it that that wow you. So I mean, it's, it seems almost too cartoony. Yeah. Now we know that the like in part two, there's going to be an extended thing with some biplanes because he's been recording oh, these. Okay. He's been recording these very funny um, uh, videos while he's been up there in the sky over South Africa, filming with these biplanes, and he's like walking around with no no. Uh, um, cables or anything on the the wings of these planes. Oh, okay. So, I mean, that is that is a classic Tom Cruise like you know dangling off a plane type of thing. And uh, I, I mean, I could see some excitement there. Um, I think, but yeah, then the question is like, how do they work it into the story? Does it feel organic? Well, that's the thing. I was like, I figured the big stunt in Dead Reckoning Part Two would be him holding his breath for like ten minutes underwater or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like. I think I can't explain it any better than saying it felt like I was watching our cartoon. Uh, the stunts were almost too well choreographed. Um, it was slapstick at the same time. Not so creative. I hated the bridge fight between the villain no. and Ilsa. I thought that was pretty um, cool. I, I I liked that, you know. I, I thought the visually it was cool, but the way they worked in a death of a major character or potential death, as you alluded to. Uh, well, we don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't like that. Um, I thought the knife fight was a little cheesy, in my opinion. Um, yeah. And and the villain just never seemed that threatening to me, like, if, as a physical, like, force. It, it, they set up this thing where, like, uh, Gabriel, the guy that the entity is controlling, um, has beef with Ethan uh, dating back to when he first joined the IMF. Was that retconned? I don't remember him in the previous Mission Possible. He wasn't in the first one, no. And, and like, they... Well, I think the scene that we see a couple of times in this one is supposed to take place before the events of the first Mission Impossible. Okay, so they did record. Yeah, they're adding material that we weren't okay, previously okay, aware of, okay. as far as I know. Okay, I hate yeah, that. Yeah, I know, I know. I hate that. I know. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. Um, no, Continue. but it's it's a fair point because they there are times when like it feels like Gabriel has zero agency. He's just getting taking these orders from this computer unquestioningly, and he's less of a character and more just like a, a mouthpiece for this thing. And it's <sighs> so stupid. You know, I obviously we take a lot. Uh, we take a big grains of salt with a lot of this stuff, you know, like it's mission impossible. You're not really supposed to think through a lot of, a lot of this stuff, but you know, if, if there are any kind of immersion breaking things, it, it, they can kind of chip away at, at how invested you are. So for me, that was one thing I, you know, I kept thinking like, okay, who is this guy really? Like, why does he enjoy killing people so much? Why does he enjoy causing pain for Ethan? Like, how does that how does Ethan being in emotional pain serve the, the the robot, the unfeeling robot? I don't know. Yeah, so you know how uh, the one thing they always bring up is like, the only way you can he- hurt Ethan Hunt is to hurt his friends. Right. You know who that reminds me of? Who? Vin Diesel and family. <laughs> right. Like, bring Fast X, bring Dead Reckoning. Tell me the difference between the two. There is right. none. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that one is well more well made and less corny than the other. Yeah. And I always thought that was I thought that was Sean Harris's bit was that like he didn't want to really kill Ethan Hunt. He just wanted people to suffer. 
and mm. we bring back the same villain again. And mind you, Gabriel has like a really shitty costume. Sorry, but like a tan, <laughs> you know, military button down jacket doesn't really do it for me. I think he has an ascot at one point. I don't even know. He does. He definitely does. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's just like, there's too many double crossings. There's too much Ray-Ban sunglasses product placement. <laughs> oh, and I have to say the sequence of the potential bomb in the airport. Mm. Not that interesting. It de- What does it reveal? Really? Like I'm waiting for something to happen. Like other than it being like a diversion from and like acting or, or adding more intensity to like a chase scene. Yeah. What does it actually accomplish plot wise, character wise? I, I like I, I struggled to figure that out. Yeah, because it takes Benji out of the mission for the brief uh, chunk of time, and it almost like I don't know. It almost would have been a better a twist to have the bomb be real and have it kill Benji for real rather than have Ilsa be stabbed by Gabriel later in the film because I feel like we would we may we might not see the explosion coming because like bombs are always getting diffused in Mission Impossible and for one to finally go off because this machine is like uh beating them at every turn I think that would that would be a bit more effective if um, you were to if you had to kill off a character of significance in Mission Impossible it's not the female it's either got to be Ving Rhames or Benji and it has to be either those two because we got Michelle Monaghan. <laughs> I mean, and then you got Elsa Faust and then you got um, Haley Atwell. What was the character's name again? See, they're all interchangeable though. You know what I mean? At that point, it becomes like the stakes are not as high as they should be. And that's maybe why Dead Reckoning doesn't hit the same way because there is there are no stakes. For the parts that do work, they work incredibly well. Like, I mean, I had a big smile on my face through big sections of this. I'm not going to lie. Like, uh, there were moments where I was like, I I was like, yeah, this is Mission Impossible. And like, in those moments, you're like, all right, this is why I come to these movies. So like, in terms of execution those moments play well but but like you're saying it's not it's not so much about the the moment it's how they all work together and what moment were you thinking i i can think of like one specific well not one specific but like whenever palm clementief's character was on the screen those were my favorite parts of the movie yeah she's great i mean the car chase scene was great yeah um i like the i like any moment with the masks i've always thought the masks are cool um (laughs) it's not overdone for you yet no, because, I mean, that's that's kind of like their stamp, you know, like you have to have at least a few mask moments and the reversal, you know, through espionage and not, you know, physical violence or something is is a lot more interesting to me. Um, so I like how they poke fun at it, though. Exactly. Yeah. Like they have the one break in this one. So that was yeah, that was a bit of a subversion. Um, but the yeah, like this in those in those individual sections, I was like, yeah, OK, this is this Mission Impossible um they they know their tricks very well and you're right it does border on formula um maybe even goes all the way over into formula at certain points um yeah for sure so time will tell you know does the they say that this this final one the eighth one that's coming up in a year or two is going to be the last one um what kind of taste does it leave us with in our mouth you know is it uh gonna be the crowning achievement of tom cruise i don't know oh of all the film female characters actually i thought vanessa kirby did a really good job as well yeah yeah i like how like playing like two characters but not really you know what i mean yeah and and also like she doesn't 
immediately side with Ethan every time just because they had one positive interaction in the last time. She's uh it's kind of like Robert Downey Jr. Tropic Thunder. She's playing a woman disguised as a woman as another woman. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah. Um I thought she was a really interesting character. Too bad she didn't get a lot of screen time. But mm. hopefully that changes. But uh yeah, I, I wasn't that interested. I think I ended up giving it like three out of five. Mm, okay. No, I'm I'm more way more positive than you. I mean I had a I had a better time recognizing the faults, but but I had a better time, so I was like four and a half. But oh, also I should point out my my least favorite forming love moment in this Mission Impossible series now is when Ethan Hunt describes a plan and you see them going through it, and then like something bad happens and they cut back to reality and you're like oh huh. see we were just talking about it you know what the sequence right. I'm, I'm talking about yeah, yes yeah, yeah so yeah. that was when I'm like ah it's the same gag again <laughs> I, I it had been too long since I'd seen one so I I had forgot that they oh, did okay. that before and I thought okay. that that was okay but right. yeah it's that I, I would prefer it if they didn't do the gag again because if if that's becoming a uh, an ongoing thing then we get the point yeah yeah, yeah I, I mean I've watched Fallout many times so maybe that's why so yeah okay okay um real quick though indiana jones and the dial destiny this way fasten your seatbelt there might be some tablets you've taken your chances made your mistakes and now a final triumph i'd gone through like phases on this one of of excitement i was like like pre or post movie pre-movie so i i like um at first when i first heard that they were making it i was not looking forward to it because you you just look at like how old harrison ford is and you're (laughs) like there's no possible way that this can live up to the ones that came before i mean crystal skull was pushing it everyone was he he was making like jokes about being too old for this shit back then and that was in 2008 Mm. um and then i saw some sort of quote from steven spielberg where he had been screened the movie uh, you know a month before it came out and he apparently turned to james mangold and said i thought i was the only one who knew how to make these things and i was like that's a cool line i that piques my interest a little bit i mean he's probable that he was just being nice to james mangold because yeah i agree i think that's what happened he knows that that there's a lot of money riding on this which turned out to be the movie's downfall um (laughs) but yeah so then i i was like huh okay cool um that's that's interesting and then you go to see it and you're like all right it's still got a little bit of what we recognize from the the series but man it it's i'm i am whelmed right it's the same kind of yeah. reaction as yeah. to Mission Possible. It's like, okay, it starts off pretty good. Villains are interesting. Mads Wilkerson can do no wrong. I like the action adventure part of it. Mm. Phoebe Waller-Bridge isn't entirely annoying, although I still don't understand what her motivations are half the time. <laughs> uh, and Harrison Ford definitely looks old, and he runs like an old dude. Um, but the last third of the movie, the time travel sequence... The moment they arrived in ancient Greece or whatever it was, completely lost me. (laughs) Completely lost me. It got to the point where it becomes too fantastical and too unrealistic. I think like when you look at the the first original trilogy with like spirits and like ghosts and monsters, that I get. Mm. Um, When you start throwing in aliens and time travel. I think you've gone kind of over the edge of what Indiana Jones is supposed to be. Yeah. Um, I, for one, didn't think 
James Mangold was maybe the right choice. I think he's a really great director. I appreciate his work, but his work tends to be more better on the dramatic side and less so on the action side of things. Mm, yeah. And that, that might just be Harrison Ford's age. Like he just can't film the the old sequences like he used to. They can't uh, justify why an eighty year old would be throwing punches or anything. Like nobody believes it. So. Well, he still he still throws a mean right hook. Apparently, uh, sure. I mean, <laughs> but but nobody's going to nobody's going to say like, oh, uh, Har- Harrison Ford in his eighties will go into a fight with that seven foot tall um, Nazi mm-hmm. neo Nazi guy who looks like a mm-hmm, f- mm-hmm, football mm-hmm. linebacker on steroids and. And have like a convincing fight. Like they're not going to do that sequence because no one would buy it. Yeah. And it has similar beats. Instead of snakes, we get eels. Right. Um, There's a couple lines in there um, that are, you know, uh, throwbacks and references to the previous movies. I'm really less interested in old white male protagonists going through divorce. Mm, Right. (laughs) Just not, not appealing as a hero to me. Yeah, I just I thought the best parts were Boyd Holdbrook and Mads Mikkelsen. To be honest, I liked I liked Mads Mikkelsen. I I will say that um, upon watching the uh, the review from the guys at Red Letter Media, um, they pointed out, and I, I kind of agree with them that um, mm-hmm. if you were bored at all in the first two acts, and you were kind of wondering like, where is this really going? Like, how what what's our big fantastical supernatural um, reveal, and then they do the swing of like, all right, we're going to send them back in time through a a portal in the sky. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I didn't expect they'd fully go there. And so there's, there's a bit of a twist there that I, you know, I I was caught off guard by it. I was like, wow. Okay. They really did that. They really traveled back in time, several thousand years. And it was just wacky enough that I was, I was more on board uh, for it than you were probably. And it were you bored in the first two hours though? I wasn't. I wasn't bored, but I was like, you know, you're thinking to yourself, where is it going? You know, like, or if you, you know, you're like, okay, we're gonna keep this thing away from people for for from the bad guys for a little while, and then they're gonna take it back, and then we're gonna get another little edge over them, and then they're gonna take it back, and you know, so there was a this back and forth. You know, it didn't really, you weren't really clear what this Antikythera could really do, and then you see what it can do. And you're thinking, oh, wow. All right. And I kept expecting them to um, to just sort of like get close to it. And then the portal would close on some climactic moment. They would see their mistake and then they'd be like, oh, God. And then they'd fly away from it or something. But then they actually go back there. And and then I I was thinking, like, is he actually going to die in ancient Greece? Like, I thought for sure they were going to leave him. Yeah. Yeah. And I I I was thinking, like, is this a good ending for the character? I don't maybe. I agree. I, I was I was expecting them to kind of try it. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so, and well, the fact that he went through the entire final sequence with a gunshot wound is just ridiculous. And and the fact they they just conveniently mentioned how easy it was to go back to where they were, even though they had like minutes to spare. Yeah, yeah. And the yeah. plane was broken, and he, they had to like somehow drag him to that plane. Like, how does that all work? They faded to black very conveniently. I was really interested in the first two hours for most of the time. Well, we got some more like ra- actual archaeology, so you know that's um, that's an important part of the of the franchise. I have this theory that. The more secret societies are involved, the better Indiana Jones movies are. If you look at the original trilogy, there was always some like hidden third party that was also interested in the events and that they somehow like come in and mm. and get involved somehow. Like there's that secret society that was protecting the temple 
in uh last crusade yeah yeah the last crusade yeah. yeah and then yeah you had like mysterious assassins in the lost ark and everything and yeah so i mean it for me dial of destiny was definitely spiritually closer to kingdom of the crystal skull even though it's better than kingdom of the crystal skull i this franchise is done i i think this is it this has to be it oh uh, yeah i mean they can't uh <laughs> uh conan o'brien had this bit like 15 years ago where he had Harrison Ford on the show and he was like, well, where is this franchise really going to end? Like, uh, is people just bringing the antiquities to you while you lie in a bed? And, yeah. and Harrison Ford thought that was pretty funny. Um, but I mean, that honestly, that might actually happen because there's there's no way they can defend him being out in the field after all of this, uh, after this one, certainly. Crotchety old men do not make good main characters. And we, we, we got to talk about the money side of this too because they, they spent like... $250 million, allegedly, uh, before marketing, I think. and It all went to, like, the first 20 minutes of de-aging Harrison It Ford's did it, face. though, because, I man, it feels like... It was the, good, right? The, no, I didn't like it at all. Oh, I, you didn't? I thought it was really well done. It took me completely out of it. I oh. would have I would have preferred the movie to be 20 minutes shorter and ditch all of the de-aged scenes entirely and just have them talk about it in dialogue because oh, i could okay, not maybe it's maybe it's my like familiarity with the way that um tech works but all i could see was the um like the the, the face elements kind of floating around not really sticking the kind of weird warpy kind of mushy effects kind of uh, not being quite there and i was thinking if this is what it you know lucasfilm um with all of their you know, industrial light and magic people and they spend $250 million and that's what we're, we're left with. I, I don't know how you would improve it. Um, and they even used a guy. Uh, there's this young actor who is the, the, the body double for young Harrison Ford, who they stuck his face onto. Um, he actually looks he was he was in this movie Age of Adeline with Blake Lively. And I only ever saw him in the trailer because uh, that movie wasn't really for me. But um I remember thinking like, oh, he's playing a younger version of the Harrison Ford character in that movie. And he looks just like young Harrison Ford. Why not just cast him and have him play himself or have him be himself on screen? It would have been cheap. It would have been cheaper. It would have been more convincing. And they didn't do it. They they thought, you know, their technology was was up to snuff. And I don't know. OK, I, I felt different. I thought it worked pretty good. OK, I just think it's not a surprise to me that this was a financial flop. And if you ask me where the budget went for this movie, I'd be like, I have no clue, dude. I really have no clue. There wasn't that much CGI. I mean, I guess a lot of money went into like making the the set decorations and the costumes look era specific. There was a lot. Of, there was a fair amount of CGI in the final sequence in Greece. Yeah, but I mean, that was about it. Like, I wasn't impressed by any of it of the movie, to be honest. And and maybe that's why I didn't like it as much because in the previous Indiana Jones films, I always thought there were little bits here and there where I thought were really interesting or, or exciting or stuff that I had not thought of. I think too, like um, somebody pointed this out in the run up to the movie coming out, but you think about Raiders of the Lost Ark, which obviously introduced the character and is most people's favorite. Um, and there's the scene in the beginning when the U.S. government guys come and they tell Indy that they're looking for the the Ark. 
and they don't know very much about the Ark. And then Indy's got to tell them, he's got to speak from his experience as an archaeologist, what he knows about the Ark. And, and he sets up very brilliantly what the danger is. And it's, you know, it's like a seven or eight minute expository scene. And normally you'd be bored in a scene like that, where they're just being like, this is why you need to care about the plot, blah, 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 blah. But the way Spielberg shot that locks you in. Just something about the tension that he builds and the fact that he says, like, look, this thing, the Ark of the Covenant, it's like not just some Bible story. It has this supernatural power. We don't really know. You know, it's 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 been lost to time, et cetera, et cetera. And you're like, whoa, OK, the, definitely the Nazis don't need this thing or they shouldn't be allowed to get it. So that that then your whole all your expectations are set for the rest of it. You understand the importance for why um, Indy's got to find this thing before they do. But in Dial of Destiny, we don't understand what Mads Mikkelsen's goal is until the third act. And it's a very shaky goal, I have to say. We know he wants the Antikythera, but we don't know exactly what it what it can do. And and then maybe that's why the, the idea of going back in time feels like such a twist, because you're like, whoa, where's this coming from? You know? The lecture um, scene in this one definitely doesn't feel as funny either. The lecture scene? Oh yeah, where the uh, uh he's he's doing the professor stuff and he's kind of yeah, crotchety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's usually that's usually one of like the more charming scenes in the previous films. Yeah. Um and it's it's kind of a nice contract to see how like the students went from like seeing him as a heartthrob right. <laughs> to like being just like, why am I in this class? Um, I think the big part of the success of this movie hinged on Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, what did you think of her character? I could not care less for her, to be honest. <laughs> her character. They obviously needed a character who was a, a foil to, to Indy because his ideals are, you know, things belong in a museum. They should be studied and she doesn't care. She just wants to make profit from it. And that's supposed to be... Which seems out of character for her. Yeah, because you don't really... I guess you, you're expecting her to eventually turn over and and like have a change of heart. So maybe you don't... You don't really buy that she's as, as uh, cold-hearted as she seems on the on the surface. Well, I just never understood why she had to betray Indiana Jones in the first place. It, it just felt like the m- most inconvenient way for her to accomplish her goal, <laughs> you know? And I didn't really always understand the relationship between him, Toby Jones, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I guess maybe Indy, Indy expected her to be more respectful of antiquities given the way she was brought up and the who her father was and then it turns out that she at least on the surface she doesn't she's thrown all that away and i guess he's disappointed but um i would have loved to see short round in this film to be honest yeah but come on <laughs> k where's kehoi kwan like <laughs> yeah um yeah i'm glad the series is over i was very whelmed by this i wasn't really yeah. into it i uh yeah there well if it doesn't really uh, end up being a financial success they, they're even less incentivized to try to make something else i think it's a foregone conclusion it's not going to be a financial success i can't see this do well post theaters like on streaming or like physical yeah media. i mean it's uh nostalgia is only uh so successful and yeah that's that's that chapter closed we won't uh until they they've get their um grit their teeth and and decide to reboot the series entirely we oh no no just leave it Come up with something else. Uh, it's Disney. They're going to do it. You know they will. Oh, right. It's Lucasfilm. Actually, does Disney own the rights to Indiana Jones or is that still Lucasfilm? Yeah, this is this is their their first one as uh, 
keepers of the kingdom. Disney's like been missing a lot lately, eh? They have, they have. They really little... messed this up. Good job, Kathleen Kennedy. First, they screw up Star Wars till it's like unrecognizable, and we've talked at length about this. Then they screw up Marvel because they don't know how to like properly like transition to the next phase. By the way, have you seen Secret Invasion? Not a good show. No, <laughs> I heard. I heard it was bad. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it was bad. It's just it's not good um and and then this it's like the, you need to take a break and reevaluate things because how how did it go so wrong i mean 20 years from now we're gonna ask ourselves how the hell did marvel and the mcu die like this i don't think ant-man is the proper guy to pin everything on the writer strike and actor strike obviously doesn't help yeah i don't expect the marvels to be like a big hit either mm. so and then you have the jonathan major stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just like one thing after another um yeah it's it's an interesting time it's it's more fun to be observing on the outside and sort of seeing it fall apart than it is to be a diehard fan being left to kind of uh you know comb through the rubble but um yeah, the that's that's why I was you know uh, will fit in a really tiny mention of uh, Asteroid City to make good on the okay, on the yeah, intro, sorry. but like yeah. Asteroid City was so like it had such a handmade feel, um, and I know you know I uh, I'm a bit of a meme at this point for my love of Wes Anderson, but again like the the guy can in my estimation the guy can do no wrong. He plays on all the same stuff. I like this way more than the French Dispatch. And a lot more fun. Oh, okay. Okay. It had a, That's good. Even though it was a large ensemble, he told one continuous story. The problem with the French Dispatch was that it was a little broken up into those individual uh, narrative threads, uh, for me at least. But uh, Asteroid City was was great. Um, it, uh, I mean, you can talk all you want about the artificiality of of the way it looks and the the, the performances and and all of that, but uh, I don't know the 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 deadpanness and the fact that they put so much like you know they built this model train just for the like it was like a larger size like each car was like you know as big as a person or something um just for this random opening sequence uh was just it harkens back to an older school style of movie making and you know in in a world of marvel and uh um lucasfilm stuff where you know so much of it is like 200 million dollar budgets where you're not sure where the money is going etc etc it's nice when you can see something that was like made for like a medium budget with actors in it who don't care about you know making a big buck they're pay they're working for like the day rate the the union rate um it's it's you know worth celebrating yeah okay fair enough i mean i'll check it out at some point i it's just not it wasn't playing at any of my big local theaters here which I think tells you a bit about the pull of Wes Anderson. Oh yeah, I mean he's always been he's always had a very targeted thing. He's he's never going to make a tremendous profit on anything he does. Um, but funnily enough, I think it, like Disney Plus has the distribution rights for uh, his movies in Canada. So if you want to stream it, you'll end up uh, with Disney anyway. So <laughs> kind of a weird little twist there. Mm-hmm. Right. True. Anyway, that's my recommendation. It's been in theaters for a while. It may even be out of most theaters, but if it's if it's popping up and streaming, go see it. I think that about does it for this episode. Um, we still have another whole month ahead of us of summer movie season, though. So 
there's a few things left, including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and New Legacy. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's going to be a, a topic for the next episode for sure. Um, I'm probably. I'll make you listen to me talk about it. Oh, yeah. Well, I will make you listen to me talking about the Meg 2, the trench. So. Oh, okay. You know. Well, can we promise that if I go see Meg 2, you'll see Ninja Turtles? Yeah. Okay. That's a that's a fair bargain. <laughs> I'm actually curious, oh, no. like, if you, because I mean, uh, Meg Two, oh, I can't do horror though. I mean, it's <laughs> it's more of comedy horror. It's still horror, still jump scares. Yeah, there'll probably be a couple jump scares, but it's big sharks, which is scary. What about Jaws? Do you saw the original Jaws? I think if you could survive, Jaws was terrifying. Oh, yeah. You didn't find Jaws terrifying in the beginning, but then I was, you know. Once, once it's still uh, a scary movie now. Once Robert Shaw shows up, I, I felt better. It's still a scary movie now. <laughs> There's still really tense moments in that, but even though I know what's gonna happen, it's just the dread of seeing Bruce is like incredible. Yeah, but now like imagine Bruce, but like ten times bigger, and facing off with Jason Statham on a jet ski. I don't want to do. I don't. I don't want to do this bed anymore. You should watch Ninja Turtles. It's culturally significant. The Meg is not culturally significant. But uh, until then, my name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. The Extra Buttery Podcast is written, recorded, and produced by Jason Chen and Robert Snow. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And remember, popcorn is always better with extra butter.